millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. As you know, this show is a persistent member of the Agora Podcast Network a cooperative of independent educational podcasts carefully curated for your listening pleasure. This month, I have the pleasure of plugging Steve Coleman and Travis Dow's Bohemican podcast, a podcast all about the history and culture of Czechia, the central European state that could. Those of you who have read ahead know that Czechia and its predecessor, Bohemia, will feature somewhat prominently in our show, Uh, eventually, so you might do well to learn a bit about the history of this most tenacious of cultures. As it happens, I've just been informed, hot off the presses, that Pete will be posting an episode about vampires in Chechia. So, there's a lot at stake. You really will want to sink your teeth into that one. It's a subject of undying interest to many people. Anyway, be sure to look up Bohemican wherever good podcasts are given away for free, and maybe check out some of the other great shows from the Agora Podcast Network. This show does not run on nothing. This show runs on effort and time and money. And as such, it is worthy that we give honor and praise to those who help us with the money aspect of that equation. This month, we have a number of patrons who have given their hard-earned money to keep the lights on and keep this thing coming out every month. First up, we have David, who shall be known henceforward as Sir David, groomer of the royal pool table. Patron Miles shall be known from this day to many future days as Sir Miles of the Bleak Suburbs, master of very bloody few, over-consumer of meat pies. Thank you very much, Miles. Next up, we have Kit, whose many great deeds at the behest of this great nation has earned him the title of Viscount Kit, Assistant Broom Warden of the Royal Second Breakfast Nook. And finally, we have Mark, who shall be known far and wide as Earl Mark, Chief Attendant of Co-host Duncan's Private Bathhouse. Thank you very much to David, Janico, Miles, Kit, and Mark whose deeds are so worthy of honor and praise, and who have so helped the show. If you would like to help the podcast, you can head over to the website at wittenberg2westphaliapodcast.weebly.com and head over to the support page where you can donate securely via PayPal or become a continuing member on Patreon. Or you can head over to the store page where you can purchase swag of the show. Uh, We have a bunch of great stuff there, and it's cool. Members at the appropriate level remember, do get a discount. There is a discount code that is now available. If you want to support the show, but you don't have money at hand, you can tell a friend, tell someone on social media, things like that. 
Speaking of social media, we're on Facebook. We are on Twitter. Uh, it's a good time. We are in the History Podcasts Discord server, so check that out. And you can email me, get in touch, let me know you like the show. That's always appreciated. And just in general, thanks everybody for listening. Now, let us begin. Greetings! My name is Ben Jacobs, your host as we travel towards Wittenberg and Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. This is episode... Long pause as I edit in, in later. <laughs> Podiversary interview with Zach Twomley. Podcast footnote. Episode 80. End podcast footnote. Today I will be desperately buying myself time for doing research. I mean, I will be helping out a friend, Zach Twomley, with an interview about his new book, Matchlock nice. in the Embassy. <laughs> Amongst other things, Zach is the host of When Diplomacy Fails, a podcast that you've probably heard of, and if not, you should go listen to. He's also a PhD candidate at Trinity College in Dublin and a founding member of the Agora Podcast Network. And, you know, an all-around nice guy. Zach, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. And thank you for a lovely introduction that you spent a long, long time thinking <laughs> up. I really appreciate that. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> I certainly didn't just desperately dash it out in the two minutes before we started work. Started no, of course no, not. of course not. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Zach, welcome to the show again. And um, you've just released a, a new book and you're doing uh, your PhD and you've got uh, your you're doing the 30 years war on your show yet again. Uh, so you've got a lot going on. <laughs> How are you doing? Mm -hmm. I'm doing well. Things are very busy, but very good. I'm really enjoying myself. I have, I do have, as you said, I have an awful lot of balls in the air right now, but juggling them isn't so bad. Maybe ask me in a, a few months time when more things are due for the PhD and kind of question, <laughs> question exactly what I'm doing. Uh, but yeah, things are, are going very well. And uh, I just feel like my life feels like it's like PhD mixed with 30 years war at the moment, but it's yeah. pretty good. I like it. Cool, cool. So I've never talked to you about this before. Does your uh, PhD topic, does that cross paths with the 30 years war at all? Or do you get a mental break and talk, think about something else when you're doing work for school? Yes, yeah, it would probably make sense to combine the two, wouldn't it? That would probably like in retrospect would have been a real good idea but um the the issue with that would be honestly i would need another language and while um, i love english i haven't been able to master anything else and despite my efforts at, at learning german on duolingo they don't, that doesn't seem to qualify so yeah as, as as far as that goes i'm sticking to my other wheelhouse which is 19th century british history like more specifically kind of later victorian period and i'm looking at the code of honor and if anyone's right. falling asleep and snoring in the back right now, don't worry, <laughs> I understand. <laughs> no, but it's, it's good to be able to uh, to give yourself a, a bit of a palate cleanser when you're, and you're not just work on one thing all the time. Yeah, it's certainly a palate cleanser, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, um, so your new book, we should probably talk about a bit about that. Um, your, the book is called uh, Matchlock and the Embassy. I believe. Mm -hmm. And I've read it and it's very good, but why don't you tell everybody what it's about? 
Right, well, Matchlock and the Embassy is a 30 years war historical fiction novel. It's going to be a series, but this is the first one in the series, and it follows the adventures of Matthew Locke, hence Matchlock. It's just a kind of <laughs> abbreviation of his name. He gets that name for from doing particularly remarkable deeds with the Matchlock musket. But in his personal life, he's got a bit of troubles and he basically lands in Europe in 1622. So the very early part of the Thirty Years' War, it's really only a few years old at that stage. He lands in The Hague to try and find out basically how his parents got brutally murdered. And it goes, the story goes on from there. He gets sucked into the actual conflict, but he's also on the ground along the Rhine and has to kind of piece together the story of really, well, what happened to his parents and why they ended up dying. And he also has a, a troubled past in itself. And I don't want to give too much away, but it involves a, a little bit of conspiracy, a little bit of intrigue, lots of diplomacy, a bit of conflict. It's kind of like if I turned When Diplomacy Fails into a, a fiction series. <laughs> sure, yeah. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> So, um, why did you choose to do a historical fiction book in the Thirty Years' War period? Yeah, so I have been fascinated by the Thirty Years' War for a really long time, as is evidenced by, as you said, this is the second time I've actually covered the conflict in the podcast. I originally did it from like 2013 to 2014, but the episodes were much longer and there was like 18 of them. And I was also like, because I was doing it for the first time, I mean... I literally didn't know how the conflict ended when I started podcasting about it back then. So that was a real experience. And uh, yeah, well, since since that happened, I kind of changed my style up a bit. I, I basically spent a lot more time investigating all the minutiae of different wars. So I kind of applied that style. And instead of the 18 episodes, I now will be having like 82 in the end. So I, as, as a result of that, my supreme interest in the 30 years war it's kind of always been a factor well at least in the last few years and something which has always kind of grinded my gears a bit is that well no one really likes this conflict or really yes. no one knows about it so well. despite the fact that it's it's very important and when i say no one i mean no one outside of kind of history enthusiast circle like if you stop someone in the street which is like my favorite analogy because it's such a funny image asking someone what they what some random or things from the 30 years war or the peace of westphalia or Gustavus Adolphus or something, they are unlikely to know what you're talking about. Yeah. And I really wanted to change that. And one of the ways I tried to change that, obviously, was by podcasting about it and writing a book about it for God of the Devil. And also I thought, well, why not do a different kind of angle? And that's where fiction kind of came to me. What basically what Bernard Cornwell did with the Napoleonic Wars with Richard Sharp, I thought if I could do something like that, give people a window into that era and show them what it would have been like to live through it. Because it's one thing to describe it in a historical, like non-fiction analytical narrative, but it's quite another to kind of place the reader in that world. And that's what I really wanted to do. Yeah, and you're definitely getting there, <laughs> to be sure. Thank and, uh, you. Especially, especially in terms of, um, again, without giving too much away, the uh, the graphic violence of the whole situation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, lots of graphic violence. I actually, I'm quite squeamish myself. Mm -hmm. um, my wife, my wife is a nurse, but I'm actually quite squeamish myself. So, 
like if any kind of uh, 24 hours in A&E programs or any of that kind of thing, I just can't really watch them. But for some reason, I'm able to imagine and also write about that level of gore. So I, I'm not just doing it to be kind of gratuitous and, and right. gross. I'm, I'm doing it because it's kind of like giving someone, like it's not going to be sugarcoated. It's the early 1600s. People yeah. were like people weren't brutes or anything but if you got stabbed or you, you know if something bad happened to you you're in trouble and yeah that's really what i wanted to capture yeah absolutely and i i will just say that um i, I totally as someone who originally set out to do a podcast about the 30 years war and ended up and i'm, I'm now on uh what episode 80 this is going to be of uh <laughs> Of, of intro <laughs> I certainly understand how uh, how that had both the attraction and the frustration of the story in terms of people not understanding it and then how uh, how the scale can grow very rapidly because it's such a bizarre monster of a topic <laughs> yes absolutely and honestly like it, it the the struggle I have with how much background do I give like where do I begin where do I stop like when do I actually start are telling the story i mean it's kind of a relief to know i'm not the only one who who has that <laughs> bug in them and i think all of us uh, when we're all all history enthusiasts do have that that bug like i saw that meme where it's like um trying to explain the outbreak of the first world war and starting in alexander the great's invasion yeah. of- <laughs> so Absolutely. we're not we're not that bad but uh my july crisis project didn't start in 320s bc or anything but yeah, yeah. <laughs> Near enough. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned uh, changing styles, and uh, that's actually something I've been wanting to ask you about for a while, because you've, uh, as, as someone who's been listening from the beginning, it, it, mm. there's definitely, like, noticeable shifts in style over time. And, you know, that's that's absolutely going to happen when you're listening to someone who starts out when they're in very early in undergrad and then now is getting a PhD. Uh, but what, what do you, it, it's, um, it's very interesting how you went from just being such a topical, like one episode on one thing. Yeah. To now doing 89 episodes on, on one conflict. What do you, what do you think about that? Like, uh, yeah, I, that? yeah, I appreciate that question. Cause I actually have like many thoughts on that like a a big part of me kind of wants to go back to what I like to call like the popcorn style of when diplomacy fails where I kind of just like surf around different conflicts that take my interest but another part of me it's kind of like after going through the BA and then the masters and then starting the PhD and even just like taking the time I think the July crisis project was really kind of like a turning point in that because it kind of forced me to look at the day by day of that event. It wasn't like to put it the other way. When I originally covered the first world war, like back in early 2013 or something, I covered the July crisis in an hour. And not only that, but I was also, my analysis was very flawed and followed the whole trope of, Oh, it was Germany's fault and everything. So then a year and a half later, it was actually, I think that experience of of starting my analysis kind of from the ground up and going in way more detail, I kind of, it was very hard then to go back from that. And now having said that, I, in the future, I do plan on kind of doing one-off episodes while still, because I think it is possible to have a balance of like, yeah, 
one-off episodes but still like really well kind of researched kind of like what our fake history does like where he he goes in depth sometimes he's like trilogies that kind of thing but like focusing on a subject and then moving on like it's as someone who's been spending like the last two well really three years on the subject of honor in the british empire it's (laughs) kind of nice to think that someday i'll be able to move on from it but i also understand from (laughs) yeah i also understand from a listener's perspective if they see that i'm on episode 44 of a series episode 44 the 30 years war is just coming out like tomorrow Mm -hmm. but that is wednesday the 20th of october but like the uh the, if I'm if I'm a listener looking at that and I don't know anything about when diplomacy fails, the first thing I'll think of is good grief, episode 44 is what he's on how on earth am I going to catch up with all that now a part of me would be like, oh boy, look at all this content, but I understand <laughs> some people, yeah well like some people might look at that and be like, I don't even know what the 30 years war is, where do I start and they might yeah. not even go back through my back catalogue and everything else, so I'd like to find a balance, but at least for the moment I think doing it this way and kind of doing it more in, in depth is what suits me. And I also think it's it's necessary. Like it was really necessary for the July crisis and then for like the likes of the Korean War or the 1916 rising and then Versailles. And then now the th- like you can't look at the 30 years war without like really looking at it in detail. I don't think like I could have squeezed more out of it, but I just had to hold myself back a bit. So yeah, I, I, I think that the, the, the mixture of getting so many extra letters at the end of my name and spending like 11 (laughs) years in college or something uh that combination of the studying and the podcast like focus changing it's kind of it's made me a better historian though as well uh Mm -hmm. to be honest so i don't regret the change but i i definitely think i will find a balance in the future well i'm my show is nothing if not unbalanced uh so (laughs) i I wish you good luck Thank um, you very much. <laughs> you've mentioned that, you know, you find the 30 Years War, you know, important in general. Uh, mm. And certainly, I, I'm not going to disagree with you. <laughs> you're, you're among friends here. But yeah. if you'd like, uh, you know, if you want to elaborate a little bit, why, why do you think it's so interesting and important that you've covered it twice uh, and you're writing a book about it, you know? Yeah, a very fair questions. It's like I ask myself that sometimes as well. I'm kind of like, what's like, I not like, what's the point, but kind of like, is this like serving any utility for people? But I genuinely think that in order to kind of understand where we are now, you really have to look at events that came before. And I don't just mean 20th century, like, right. the, like, because I think because the 20th century is so recent to modern day and so shaped like so immediately shaped our current world it's easy to forget that there was a world before that that was shaped (laughs) by other things and that led to then the world which had the first world war and everything else so i i think again it's back to what we said about the meme going as far back as you can but i think you don't just have to look at things and say well this is value because it's relevant to me i think that you can find value from the 30 years war because there is so much going on in it and i don't just mean there's so many different like actors taking part or anything i just mean like the themes of like religious warfare the themes of massive armies getting way too big for their boots and like stripping the land bare and basically causing permanent damage to germany and like 
the the actual developments in military technology as well, what, what historians call the military revolution, were basically the the kind of drill uh, musket drills that we think of, where lines of men standing in rows and just firing at each other like madmen. That's kind of where th- that kind of has its infancy in in this period. So an awful lot comes from the Thirty Years' War and. I don't think it gets enough credit. And I also don't think the the characters that take part in it get enough credit. Like there's so many, that's another thing I wanted to capture in Matchlock. There's so many people like who, whose names that have just like been lost to history. Most people don't even know of them. But people who, like, for example, some Scottish mercenaries, Alexander Leslie is a great example. Right. He's a guy who who fought all the way through, essentially, the 17th century. And uh, another guy, Captain Monroe, he also, a Scot, fought from essentially the, the beginning of the Thirty Years' War all the way through to the... Uh, the British Civil Wars, and then he didn't die till 1680. There's some characters who lived through, like, and ruled the their state for the entirety of the conflict. Like the King yeah. of Denmark nearly did, the Duke of Bavaria did, Axel Oxenstierna, the Swedish Chancellor, did. Like, what a long career that was! He was the Chancellor of Sweden from 1611 to 1653. Like, that's mm. insane. And like, Swedish people might know of him they probably would if they if they know their history but i think he's a character worthy of of our time and i don't just think that like what i'm basically trying to say is just because we we don't see their immediate impact on the map of europe just because we don't feel their uh, impact on history like in in our modern states that doesn't mean that they're not worth knowing about and the more that we know about our past this is why i do love this is like the more we know about our past the the better we are to kind of understand how we got here and and our roots and like what matters and everything else and we can see people learning throughout this period by the end of the 30 years war it's not like people look at each other and say well i guess we're finished fighting about religion now but they do at least like they don't wage a war on this scale in germany over protestant versus catholic ever again um mostly because nation states start to become more important and 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 that kind of thing and louis the 14th empowers france and then you've got the french and german conflicts that really kind of begins then as well and you also of course got the habsburgs which i feel are really underserved in in english language literature when yes. people think of yeah. Has- when people think of hasbergs they just think of like franz ferdinand getting shot and some people yeah. probably even think he deserved it like so that's which is tragic because that's like the tail end of a dynasty that had been around for seven eight hundred years nearly and from 1438 they were holy roman emperors so Really, if you look at that, they were in that position for 500 years at the center of Europe, 560 something years, and like they're like the the, the Habsburgs are like the Lannisters of the of, of the <laughs> Empire. They're they're really an incredible, fascinating story, and I want to I want to shine more light upon them and and many other characters as well. So yeah, I know this was a rambling a rambling yeah. reply, but it, I think it captures the the multi the multi number of reasons why I, I love doing this so much. It just something about the 30 years before, probably because it went on for so long and then it's got the space to actually house all these things. There's something about it that just really fascinates me and really draws me in. Yeah, it's it's almost it strikes me as being sort of like Europe's version of uh what the 
the Warring States period in China or the Romance of the Three Kingdoms or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I, I can see that, yeah. But it's, for some reason, we didn't develop the, the literature, <laughs> the sense of romance around it because it was yeah. just such an awful, awful conflict. But it really I mean, was. Yeah. But then again, you know, hundreds of thousands of people died in China during <laughs> oh, like yeah. the, the Three Kingdoms period, so... Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, 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 I don't it's interesting to think about why uh, why things take the, the form that they do in, in popular consciousness I know isn't it like why why there's this narrative around like like the, the popular narrative around like say the second or first world war like people mm-hmm. still are walking around today convinced that Germany started the first world war because that's what they were like that Germany is solely responsible and right. then Germany like yes Germany is responsible for the second world war but like that like the, they have this view of it because of how they were taught in school and I understand that they're trying to rush through the however many yeah. years of history but then when you look at how the 30 years war is treated if at all there's like this dead space or there's like two sentences and one of those sentences is talking about how the peace of Westphalia like established modern Europe and brought- yeah I mean an American school child would be lucky to get even that much to be honest yeah I, I didn't know about it at all so it's it, there's definitely space for for learning more, and that's what I really wanted to do. And I and I appreciate that there's authors out there trying to do the same thing. But at, at the risk of of tooting my own horn, it is easier, I think, to access a podcast than it is to track down and then read a yeah. book. I mean, I think so because especially with streaming services, especially Spotify, just makes it criminally easy now to listen to podcasts. Yeah, and as a result of that, I think we're all going to get more exposure and. I really just want to to make sure that the Thirty Years' War gets the love that it deserves, and also <laughs> evokes the justifiable horror that it should yes, at the same absolutely. time. Yeah. <laughs> so you've mentioned characters a bunch uh, in, in the last question, and uh, that was actually something I, I noticed when reading the book. Mm. There was there's a blend, you know, obviously with a historical fiction book, this is going to happen, but there's a there's an interesting blend of purely fictional characters and non-fiction characters. I, I thought it was interesting that uh, Devere is a, a real person, I believe, right? <laughs> he is. Yes, yeah. he is. But so, he, was, uh, he was not Matthew Locke's godfather, unfortunately. Sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it, it was. I was wondering, like, uh, the entire time I was reading it, Obviously, I know you laid some of this out in the the, append- the extensive appendices that you have for the book, but uh, I was wondering if you had any any thoughts on why, like the choices you made in terms of which characters were fictional and which real characters you brought in, and that kind of thing. Yeah, well, that that again, very good question, and I've been asked before, like how much of the book was like real, how much of it was like fictional, and when it comes time to decide which one I'll use, and like why not just invent some character instead of Sir Horace Fear, and like a lot of the time I'm drawn to the person's story, like I said earlier, like I'm drawn to what they actually did in like literal established historical fact, and then and sometimes I try to kind of weave that into the story especially if it fits already with Matthew Locke. Like, if you think about it, if you're in the early 1600s, you can't just dump Matthew Locke in Europe and then be like, <laughs> yeah, see you later. Like, he would be completely lost. He needs to have some contacts. He needs to have people who will help him out. 
Yeah. And the the career of Sir Horace Vere is really fascinating because, again, he was also like a what you might call a, a soldier statesman. He fought with the Dutch in the 1590s and then led Dutch and English armies during the period as well. He, by, by the early 1620s, he was then on the English Council of War. So... He was a very, very important figure. He was then in the mid-1620s, he was at the, the Spanish Siege of Breda as well. And then by the late 1620s, he was liaising with the Swedes and trying to arrange a alliance between the Swedes and the English. So he was awfully busy. And I think rather, sometimes rather than just inventing someone out of thin air and sticking Matthew Locke onto him, it's almost easier to just follow the template that exists it's less work for me, but it's also more rewarding if, if you have that person that was really there. And then when people are reading it, they can be like, oh, this guy was legitimate. He was really there. And it's also fun for me because I get to imagine what it would have been like for Sir Horace Fear to try and navigate all these different obstacles and find out for uh, find out how Matthew Locke would have reacted too. So it kind of informs my whole approach to it and and definitely in the future expected that mixture of of real and fictional characters cool i mean speaking of the future you have uh, i'm told a few other books in the series planned yeah one or two (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i now i might be shooting myself in the foot saying this but as of this moment i i know where my story is going i know it's it's ebbs and flows and i know where it's going to end up and that to me is going to take 24 books in the matchlock series and I'm not going to be dragging out for its own sake just to reach right. 24 books, but I, I genuinely have a, a vision for it that, of course, I don't want to spoil. Sure. And I think people are really going to, like, it sounds ludicrous that you could stretch out a story for 24 books, but I think I'll be pleasantly surprised what I can do with, with Matthew Locke's story and how I can keep people interested and, and keep people guessing at the same time as well. So I, I also have to say, when you're an independent author, trying to like make your way in fiction it is much easier to make that way when you use a series in order to do it and again i'm not just making a series for the sake of it i couldn't as you might have noticed i have trouble telling stories in in small amounts (laughs) so once i start into something to do to do matthew Locke's story justice i really have to i have to take some time in telling it and the story will be richer in the end for it sure so you mentioned that you're uh, you're independently published. What what's the publication process been like? Well, it's been an education. Let's just say uh, yeah. I have it recorded on my computer that I sat down and wrote the first few words of what would become Matchlock on the twenty fourth of April this year. So I released the first Matchlock book then on the fifteenth of September. So that space of time you might think oh that's not too bad because some people take like years to release their first book and then they get a bit better at it but yeah what what i found is kind of fortunate a lot of the stuff that you have to do as, a, as an independent author we're already doing as independent podcasters yeah, so sure. getting your name out there working independently in your own time like th- those are skills that really are applicable in other areas and I definitely find that, like, if I hadn't been podcasting, I wouldn't have this. For, I wouldn't have the base of people being enthusiastic about something like this in the first place. Sure. But I also, it would have been a much steeper learning curve. Now it was still, still very tough. But fortunately, again, 
like kind of like there was with podcasting but not so much in 2012 it was a lot more barren in terms of how to start a podcast and stuff but there's an awful lot of information out there on how to be a self-published author how to mm-hmm. how to sell books by the truckload i think one book is called but like there, <laughs> there are a whole load of options out there so you really like i did before and kind of like what i did when i was in college and kind of like when i had to lecture people about brexit i just taught myself through a a whole load of different resources and a lot of those people were doing it just because they wanted to see like a proliferation of different creative projects out there and i'm very thankful to them because if not for all those youtube videos or books or whatever it is or many podcasts as well and that's the interesting thing actually the actual like author like podcasting community is quite vibrant so especially for fiction as well and like for non-fiction it's the same thing but I beforehand I was already published with a small press anyway so I I knew what it was like to be published but I also knew that if I wanted to have my own kind of intellectual property and a completely new thing I wanted to own all of it myself so that's kind of like the reason for why I wanted to do it and I didn't want to I was really kind of like a fire had kind of been lit under me if that makes sense I kind of really just I really wanted to make it happen because I'd always had this idea that I wanted to write a story and I always have loved writing uh, fiction so uh, as a consequence of that the the process for getting a, a, a novel published I think I think because it was so personal to me I had to make this personal journey and really a lot of the times I was forcing myself forward I used to get this kind of sick feeling when I stumbled across this latest thing that I had to learn about self-publishing but like I said I'm sure it's the same with other self-publishers who were learning their way you just have to like take a breath be like right it's not the end of the world I've come this far it'll be all right I'm not going to give up now and I mean I can confidently say that writing the book is the easiest part of the process especially when it comes time to like marketing and that kind of thing but it's fairly intuitive once you once you get a handle on like a few key things and you know like the main places to upload your book and that kind of thing and the likes of like print on demand where someone basically orders the book on amazon or whoever else prints it there and then that means like the days of having to order like two thousand of your own book and then show yeah. them off to people those days are mercifully over although not in time for <laughs> not in time for me last year getting all those books and then <laughs> spending a fortune sending this two kilogram book out to the world <laughs> during the heights of covid oh yeah so that was it. Well, like either way, like you still have to do a good bit of marketing and a good bit of promotion, even if you're not self-published. Like sure. unless you're with Penguin Random House or one of the other big ones, you really will have to do a lot of the marketing and and tell like tell people about it and provide links and like all this kind of thing and bang on and on, on about it until people eventually buy it. So if you're going to be doing that anyway, you might as well do it and reap all the profits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um... So did you have like an editor and stuff like that? Um, my editor goes by the name of Anna Twomley. And, uh, <laughs> no, but seriously, uh, my dad is something of a polymath and he has grown up with books and he really kind of put that love of books in me as well. So I, when my dad reads, oh, my dad must go through two or three fiction books a month, like fairly easily. <laughs> and he often hands them off to me. And now 90% of the time, I don't have time to read it. Yeah. But uh, I like, if you saw our bookshelves at home, they are stacked. And I mean, stacked 
And if not for mum, they'd be even more stacked because they just go, <laughs> they just get way out of control. But like he, he's very much aware of like at this point, what makes a good book and what doesn't. So I kind of ran it through him first to kind of see. I was also aware that like, because the bigger the book is, the more expensive it will cost to edit. And it costs a small, not a small fortune, but be prepared to spend a little bit, if nothing else, just so you can get a good cover if you can't make them yourself. And even if you can make them yourself, they're probably not good enough to like hang with the best of them. Right. So you want you want to pay someone in order to do that. So I wanted to save money where I could. And I also wanted to see, like, I was fairly confident that between my dad looking at it and my wife even just reading it through to make, like, basically being a proofreader, she read it through twice. My dad read it through, read it through twice as well. And I got extensive feedback from them, probably more <laughs> feedback than I wanted, to be honest. <laughs> but uh, it was really, really good, really good. And and I kind of like that idea. We we have our, uh, our editor's council where we used to kind of, and we'll have to obviously resurrect this for the books to come. But nice. I like kind of, I like having it a close circle of people that like my family who I could talk about with it because... I'm kind of jealous with with my babies. I don't really like to to put them out there. And I'm also, I've got a very thin skin. So if if it is bad, I'd rather my family tell me it's bad so I can fix it before (laughs) I put it out into the world. Sure. Sure. Well, I mean, (laughs) you've you've put it out there now and you're going to be getting the feedback, I guess. Indeed. (laughs) Yeah. It's touching. This is touching back on on something we talked about a little bit before. Um, in terms of the reasons that different eras become sort of romanticized and uh, and that kind of thing, um, mm-hmm. like we've said, there, there's very little romanticized fiction from the Thirty Years' War period, but there is a, a famous series that comes like immediately afterwards. Uh, the 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 Three Musketeers books by Dumas uh, were set sort of in Louis XIV's time, which is sort of just after the Thirty Years' War, I guess, in the grand scheme of things. And, um, you know, I, we, we talked earlier, and so you haven't read The Three Musketeers. <laughs> yeah, which seems kind of shambolic, considering it's like, it's called Matchlock. You think Matchlock Musket would lend itself to Three Musketeers, <laughs> but I find I'm always surprising people by how little I know. So there we go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm outing myself once again. Yes. Um... I guess I don't actually have anywhere to go with this. You're just trying <laughs> to just show me up. That's all this no, is. No, no, no. <laughs> like, I feel like I need one or two more questions. <laughs> I think That's I've... fair. Um... So I, I haven't been keeping up with the 30 Years War stuff on my end. Um, um, I was really in, interested in the stuff that you dug up about what was going on with Russia in the first go through with the 30 Years War. Oh, um, yeah. That, that was too. really fascinating. <laughs> Um, I know. Yeah. And, and I'll, I'll be revisiting that in more detail. In fact, I do revisit in more detail in, in the second go around. But yeah, I that yeah. was probably one of the most, that was probably one of my proudest things was bringing attention to that because nobody, yeah. like as, as obscure as the 30 Years War is, that is like so, like but the source for that was like a Soviet historian writing yeah. in the 60s who didn't even finish that book in the end. Like he only yeah. like wrote like the first like 10 chapters, but it's so meticulously researched. Yeah. Like I, I got it from the library, not really knowing what it would be about. I just saw Muscovy in Sweden, 30 Years War, and I was like, oh, cool, I'll get that. And 
I was like walking out there with like a huge arm full of books. <laughs> and then as I read through it, I was like not marking any of it, but being like, oh, that's really important. That's really important. Yeah. And I just, cause kind of, I'm kind of thinking like, I know, I'm going to buy this book for myself. So I think it was like, uh, I tracked it down. It's in, it's in my, my book shed, as I call it. But it was something obscene. It was like 120 pounds yeah. or something. But I was like, this is worth it because I will use it in the future. And I have many times and I have left many, many marks on it. But it, <laughs> yeah, that's another thing I, I love about like focusing on, on this period and kind of bring 30 years more to people. I can put those different interpretations on it and show people just how widespread it was. Like I'm at a point now in the conflict in like 1628, 29, where there's like four different sieges happening at once across Europe. (laughs) And like if any one of them ends like any earlier or later than they actually did, the whole conflict would have been like widely different. So it's just, it's so like, to me, this is like, it's like addictive. It's like, I can't get enough of it. It's just so fascinating. So yeah, I'm just I'm I'm so drawn to stuff like that, and I'm I'm really glad you pointed that out because I feel like that sources like that really need more love. Yeah, and yeah, and it just like listening to listening to those episodes was just like I already thought I had a decent handle on you know the basics of the Thirty Years War. Obviously, I haven't done all my research yet, but you know I have a basic handle on the the, the plot line. But that just covering that stuff when I was listening to that the first time, it was just like, this is an entirely new angle that also suddenly explains so much. Doesn't it? Yeah. It's so fascinating though. I love the idea that like the Poles are also, I love the idea of like the external actors, like people who weren't like directly fighting in the 30 years war, but they sent mercenaries or they were related to the people who were fighting. So they were kind of like fighting like, like distant allies of those that were fighting. Like the idea that Sweden had to, arrange for Russia to attack Poland and try and get get Smolensk so that Poland wouldn't be able to attack Sweden when Sweden invaded Germany. Like, that is like, when diplomacy fails, like, that is like, wow. <laughs> that is like exactly what we're all about here. So it was really exciting to, to be able to find stuff like that. And there's so many examples of that. It's like chain reactions of diplomacy that let people do things that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to do if they hadn't set all those things in motion. And it's just, it, it's as much about, like when you're looking at the 30 years war, it's, it's as much about, yeah, everybody got involved, but also like why there were a couple of people who didn't get involved or they spent the first two thirds of the war not getting involved and like, why, yeah. why did they yeah. not get involved? Cause it, exactly. cause it sure wasn't humanitarian. <laughs> no, it was no, not. And again, about that yeah, all. not at all. But like you can turn back to Richelieu there and ask why he didn't actually declare war on the Habsburgs until 1635, like more than halfway through the conflict. And the real reason for it was because he didn't think France was ready, but that didn't stop him funding the Dutch, funding yeah. the Swedes, fighting a proxy war with the Spanish in North Italy, like doing all sorts of things that would basically prolong the war but not actually 
fight the war like if not for France the Swedes would never have been able to invade Germany they wouldn't have been able to afford it the French basically funded them the Swedes were basically the French mercenary in in that case so that like Richelieu knew what he was doing he was biding his time and then once the Swedes it's kind of like Thanos it's like the the Swedes weren't able to get the job done so Richelieu was like I suppose I'll have to do it myself and like (laughs) rolls up sleeves declares war on both branches of the Habsburgs (laughs) And, you know, by then he'd stomped out the Huguenot and, and all that stuff. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's another thing as well. Like, the, the Huguenots kind of uh, distracting him. And even then, Richelieu wasn't immune from his own approach to things. So the Spanish tried to uh, interfere and meddle by basically proposing peace and, like, let's let's make war, let's make peace with France so that we can make war on the Huguenots together. And the French, <laughs> the French tried to, the French tried to pay the Dutch to fight the Huguenots and the Dutch were <laughs> Like crazy stuff, like stuff yeah. you wouldn't believe were happening. Um, and like, there's all sorts of different stories that have like been lost to history. Like Prince Charles, before he, well before he got decapitated, he went on this secret mission to Madrid to try and arrange this marriage with the Spanish and it all fell apart. But he, right. he traveled throughout Western Europe disguised as this like I can't I think he was like called John Smith something ludicrously obvious <laughs> and he was he was traveling with his really ostentatiously dressed friend the Duke of Buckingham Any anyone with a pair of eyes would be able to see that it, they were who, who they weren't supposed to be and they arrived then in Madrid and the Spanish were absolutely distraught because they'd been dragging their heels for ages and now suddenly they had to do all the usual customs of hospitality and, and honorable uh, treatment and everything else it's just hilarious some of those things are unintentionally hilarious, but they're always fascinating as well. Yeah, <laughs> that that story is just like straight up Thompson and Thompson. From it Denver. is <laughs> wild. It is it's fantastic. It really like you wouldn't you wouldn't believe it, but history really is stranger than fiction sometimes. Now I'm going to try and do my best to shoehorn that story into. Uh, the match lock at some point if I can but it's so great to have that platform and be able to do that giving myself that option um, yeah. I, I could I could pose a question to you as well because it's okay. a question I'm I'm sure we're, we're all dying to know if you could give a, a conservative estimate when do you think you'll reach the beginning of the 30 years <laughs> not even not even the piece of Westphalia now because yeah. Well, so I, I won't tell you the beginning of the Thirty Years' War, but I'll, I'll tell you when I'm going to begin the show proper, which is with uh, Martin Luther and stuff like that. So um, right now I'm starting up my fourth season, which is going to be about the investiture controversies. Um, that is looking like it's going to be um, a year or two, mm-hmm. probably. Uh, then after that, I'm going to go- move on to the Great Schism. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then after that, uh, there's going to be one season of uh, social history in there, and I might do a little bit of an aside to talk about the Hanseatic League, and Ooh. then then I'll get Tasty. into it. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's another one where it's like this is this insane story of these pirate merchant adventurers dominating yeah. the Baltic Sea fighting. And they, yeah. Fighting and wars they really did. <laughs> they really did dominate. Like, they, yeah. they whooped the Danes. They basically, <laughs> like, oh, they were, like, on top of the world, on top of the world yeah. in the Baltic anyway. And like just a complete non-state actor. It's like something out of a James Bond movie. <laughs> yeah. 
It is. It's like a it's like a coalition of kind of city states, but they weren't even really kind of like respectable enough to be called city states. Yeah. But yet they held so much power. Yeah. Um, so, so I need to shoehorn that in somewhere. But yeah. so, so we're looking at something like two or well three to four or five years before I get to Martin Luther, unfortunately. But okay. I, I think. Um, I think to a certain extent, you can sort of see where I'm going at this point with me talking about the investiture controversy and the Great Schism, because sure. all this is a setup for when we get to Martin Luther just sort of dropping a dropping a cherry bomb into the middle of everything. <laughs> we, we've already reached a situation where the you know the religious powers that be and the political powers that be are almost like not on speaking terms. <laughs> Yeah, and that didn't help matters at all. Yeah. So you you end up with, you know, the the Catholic king of the the Holy Roman Emperor fighting a war against the Protestants and also the Catholic king of France with the tacit approval of the Pope. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, does that mean will you be looking at the War of the League of Cambrai in oh, yeah. the early 1500s? Oh, that's I, yeah. I really want to go back to that and do like a more detailed examination. I just think the flip-flopping it's, in that is hilarious. It's wild. It's great. It's, it's so good. <laughs> yeah. And just I have to say that's everything that happens to like France in that and everything it's great I I, I yeah. love that one so much that's, I mean like the 30 years war is like my quote unquote favorite war but that's definitely like a close runner up it's just so fun. they're just so shameless like yeah. just like switching sides <laughs> everyone every single person yeah sides. And yeah, yeah. To the point where it's like, what do sides even mean anymore at this point? I know. Oh, it's brilliant. Like that. That's uh, yeah. 1508 to 1516. There we go. Yeah. So that's that's going to be within the show proper, I guess, at that point. But you know, I'm going to be. That'll be its own like I don't know mini season to talk about that because I'll probably do Martin Luther, his life and the sort of intellectual developments around that and then go, by the way, there was this thing called the League of Cambrai. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to need to talk about that because that's wild. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I, I, I do envy you because I, I do love like, uh, I just, I, yeah, I think, I think I've decided now once I've finished the 30 years war and then also the PhD, if that ever actually happens, mm. that I will do follow some kind of formula where I get to surf between things that I really, really enjoy. So, yeah, and one of those would definitely be that. I just, yeah, gotta get it. <laughs> yeah, that's been my my guiding light to a certain extent. Is uh, yeah, I'm I'm following this plan that I made seven years ago, but um, I if this isn't fun, why am I doing it? Like I'm not. I'm not making a living off of this. I have a day sure. Job, so why do this if I'm not having fun? <laughs> well, that's the thing. Yeah, that's exactly it. You need to be having fun while you're doing it. And that's another reason why I love doing fiction and why I love learning about the 30 years work because it's fun. I yeah. gotta get gotta get my kicks somewhere. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that covers about, uh, that's all the questions I had and that as much time as we wanted to fill. <laughs> Right. Um, I, I mean, I have always wondered, though, how you actually feel about trebuchets. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's funny. I'm not wearing the trebuchet shirt right now, but I was wearing it yesterday. 
literally yesterday. <laughs> um, nice. I, I went over the weekend. I, I went to see a friend who I haven't seen in a few years, uh, who is a listener, and just he was introducing me to a friend, and we, we just met at a festival, and he just walks up to me. We say hi. He's just like, "Oh my God, you're wearing this shirt." <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I've been in that position as well. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So trebuchets are um, are very fun. <laughs> mm, they are. Yeah. But the video games that we all grew up on have created a, possibly an incorrect assessment of how effective they were as weapons of war. <laughs> are you saying they're not that good? <laughs> uh, I would say that they are not proto-cannons. No, they... Aww. Probably well, do all the things that everyone says. That's a shame. I must get that T-shirt though. I, I still have. I still have one from Travis J. Dow. Uh, yeah. It's it's like think think before you defenestrate. And it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a picture of a guy being thrown out the window, and I'm like, it's the T-shirt I wish that I made. Kind of way. Uh, so yeah. Well, I, I have oh. a, a whole store set up and everything now. So, uh, and if anyone nice. listening wants to buy a T-shirt, I've got a couple different patterns now. You can go if you go to the website Wittenberg to Westphalia Podcast and go to the store page. Uh, we, we're <laughs> we're set up on Shopify now, and uh, my wife and I are sharing a shop. But uh, we've got you know any knitting knitted or sewn goods you want you want to see her side of the shop and then on my side of the shop we've got three different uh patterns of t-shirt we've got some stuff for kids you know dress the whole family in wittenberg to westphalia garments <laughs> nice one and just in time for christmas of course as well. of course of course yeah get it now before <laughs> uh before the, the tubes get clogged um <laughs> On that note, uh, I just guess I'll thank you for coming and doing this. This has been uh, this has been very fun and not an inconsiderable load off my research schedule. So I appreciate it quite a bit. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a pleasure. It's, I always love talking about this. Got wrangling in me and uh, getting me to sit down and actually do it can be hard. But once we actually sure. get through the logistics, I really have trouble like stopping talking about it so yeah it's been a pleasure anytime and we must have you on as well last time you came on was for five weeks to run wild and that was that's five years ago next next uh, may so oh good lord yeah yeah wow (laughs) uh but that was that was a great chat so yeah i'd be happy to go back on anytime so where can people find the show and the book Right, so if you just search When Diplomacy Fails Podcast, uh, you can find it at wdfpodcast.com. We're on all the usual places, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, etc. So yeah, very, very easy to find. If not, you can just search Zachary Twomley Podcast and it's a weird enough name it'll come up. So I, I'm, I'm very fortunate in that way. In terms of the book, if you want to go and go and get that yourself, then the best way to do it, I'll, I'll give you a link to put in below, but... The, there's this thing called a universal book link. Another thing I've learned as an independent author, it basically, it's a link. Someone clicks on it and it brings them to this place where they choose where they want to get the book from. So you choose where you want to get it from Amazon, Google, uh, like Apple books, Kobo, Barnes and Noble, that kind of thing. So cool. books to read.com forward slash matchlock book one. But you put the link in the description below. And again, search matchlock in the embassy book purchase and you, you know we can work google in this day and age <laughs> yeah I, I would hope so <laughs> yeah but thank you so much for that I, I really appreciate it yeah no problem 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.